Well, let's return this morning to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, where Jesus has entered the final week of his life. John chapter 12. <clears throat> Only once before have all four Gospels related the same story, the feeding of the 5,000. And that story echoed the themes of Exodus and Passover. All four Gospels now record Jesus' donkey ride, which launches his final Passover week, where he will inaugurate a new Exodus. So let's take up a reading now for the third time with verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to him to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's briefly recover our three observations. First, notice what John has omitted. The synoptics tell us that Jesus deliberately arranged this whole event. Second, notice what John includes. John tells us a tidal wave of opposition has been building against Jesus. The Jerusalem leadership is already determined to put Jesus to death even before he rode the donkey. So the synoptics use the story as a display of Jesus' sovereignty. He's in control here. And John's gospel clues us in to the duplicitous schemes of the Jewish leadership. And thirdly, notice the monumentally important words of verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. We've taken three Sundays with this passage, which is highly unusual, to make sure that we really understand what's happening here. So when did it first occur to the disciples that there was more going on here than first met the eye? We'll keep reading. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. After the ascension, the disciples began to piece together the Old Testament. And they understood this donkey ride in a whole new light. All four Gospels converge on the same story because it is, in fact, universally significant. 
It's an incredibly important act that Jesus engages in. Now, when does this event occur? Well, glance back at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Well, that's Saturday. And now look at verse 12. The next day, that's Sunday. Sunday of Passover week. And in fact, in the first century, the celebration of Passover was actually a week-long affair. So this is the beginning of Passover week. So friends, why does Jesus deliberately ride a donkey to Jerusalem for Passover? Have you ever actually asked that question? Why is he riding a donkey, when he's never done so before, to Jerusalem for Passover? If you don't ask the right questions, you may never get the right information out of the text. But when you ask the right question, you may have to spend three weeks examining the text as we have done and the Old Testament because there's a lot going on here. In his book, Simply Jesus, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright uses the image of a perfect storm to describe the setting in Jerusalem when Jesus rides in. And since I like his illustration so much, I'm going to use some of it this morning. In late October 1991, a high-pressure system gathered over the maritime provinces of southeastern Canada. Together, they produced what locals referred to as a Halloween... let Let me add to that, sorry. I skipped ahead of my notes. In 1991, there was a significant low pressure system. There we go, I'm skipping ahead. A lower pressure system and cold front that moved down the coast of Canada and pressed its way into New England. In addition, a high-pressure system gathered over the maritime provinces of southeastern Canada. There we go, two storms. And together, these two storms produced what the locals call a Halloween nor'easter. It's a big storm. And Robert Case, who is a meteorologist, says these two storms alone could have produced incredible damage. However, beginning October 27th, Hurricane Grace came barreling up the coast from Bermuda. And when the three weather systems collided, a monster storm erupted. Ocean waves were thrashed into 80-foot-tall peaks. Coastal damage was sustained from Newfoundland to Jamaica. A monster storm. Well, like three menacing storms, there are three movements that are going to collide in a perfect storm over Jerusalem from the very moment that Jesus comes riding in on his donkey. Jesus comes riding in on Sunday. The storm will reach its peak late in the week. And the following Sunday, the storm subsides. And Jesus slips quietly out of a tomb. And friends, the world has never been the same. I suggested two weeks ago that the true new world order that the prophecy experts keep yammering about actually began 2,000 years ago. You're never going to understand the second coming and get it right until you understand the first coming. What really happened in the first coming? 
Revelation 1 and verse 5 identifies Jesus both as the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. That's not future, that's now. The firstborn from the dead is the ruler of the kings on the earth. So don't postpone the reign of the firstborn, or you will read the New Testament in a profoundly different way. In fact, you will read world history in a profoundly different way. Has God made Jesus king already, yes or no? Now, let's identify these three storms, or these three movements in the first century. One of them I've talked about previously, and that is the Roman storm, or the Hellenistic expectations concerning a rightful king. The fact is, Christians were not alone in their insistence that God incarnated himself in human flesh. The classical doctrine of apotheosis referred to the deification of a human being, typically a ruler or military commander. The Egyptians deified their pharaoh as early as 2500 B.C., Plutarch tells us that Alexander the Great was deified by his subjects. In 300 B.C., Lysander, the ruler of the island of Samos, was declared a god by his subjects who erected altar and worshipped to him. Antigonus I, sovereign of Asia Minor, was elevated to the status of divinity at his death. Initially, great kings and generals were deified by their followers, but in some cases, like Nero, they began pronouncing their own deity just to make sure it happened. The stories of Apotheosis were accompanied often by birth legends. Philip of Macedon, who was Alexander's father, had a dream, quote, in which he pressed a seal upon the body of his wife, and it seemed to him that the engraving of the seal bore the image of a lion. Plutarch also tells us that Alexander's mother claimed that lightning had penetrated her body and given her birth. Just before the birth of Jesus, the Romans also embraced apotheosis. Julius Caesar was deified by his followers. Of course, Julius Caesar was never the emperor. But Octavian who was Julius Caesar's adopted son, did, in fact, become Rome's first emperor. And, of course, it was under his reign that Jesus was born. And Octavian became known as Caesar Augustus. And he, too, was deified. The term Augustus meant worthy of honor. And since Augustus was Caesar's adopted son, and Caesar was a god. Augustus became known in Greek by the title, Huias tu Theu, son of God. And that title put him on a collision course with Jesus on his donkey. That identical title is given by the four evangelists to Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Son of God. So if you ask anyone from across the Roman Empire, from Germany down to Egypt, from Spain to Israel, who is the Son of God? 
Well, they wouldn't hesitate. It's Caesar Augustus. It's the emperor. All one had to do was examine a Roman coin. And two days after his donkey ride, Jesus held up a coin on the Temple Mount. On that coin was the image of the emperor, in this case Tiberius, also a son of God. And Jesus asked, whose likeness and inscription is this? Don't forget about the inscription. The likeness was the emperor and the inscription was son of God. Here is the image of the sod of God held by Jesus in his hand. Who is this? Surely, if the Son of God walked the earth, then he ought to rule the empire. Or that's what the Romans thought. So why does Jesus mount a donkey and deliberately press Zechariah's prophecy of a coming king to fulfillment? Like, what's he doing? And there's more to the story. The Roman poet Virgil prophesied of a coming golden Roman age that would be inaugurated by the birth of an illustrious son. And just as the Hebrew prophet had also prophesied the coming of a great age with the birth of a child. The Romans believed Octavian, Augustus, fulfilled the prophecy. And so they carved their monuments, the triumphant line, good news, good news. We have an emperor, justice, peace, security, and prosperity are ours forever. The Son of God has become king of the world. That's what the Romans carved in their monuments. And friends, that term, good news, is our term, gospel. Same term. And the gospel of Matthew ends with, the Son of God becoming King of the world. So the Romans believed that God did indeed walk the earth in a human body. But to find Him, you had to travel the great Roman roads to the capitals, to the capital building. So you had to pass through those great ranks of military soldiers. You had to enter that golden city with its great big towers. You had to find the man who was arrayed in purple and hoped to gain an audience. You had to find the man who was stamped all over your coins. That's the God. You wouldn't dream of looking for a peasant on a donkey lumbering into Jerusalem without an army. I mean, that's the last place you would look. So that's your first storm awaiting Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. The second storm barreling up the coast on Jerusalem concerns Jewish expectations of a new exodus, a second exodus. Israel's national story began in Egypt when God dramatically delivered the nation from slavery. But in the first century, all Israel was again hoping for another moment, another exodus moment. It's not uncommon at all for a nation to identify with a central narrative. Today we would call it a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is a grand story that just links together hundreds of local stories, brings them all together into an all-encompassing story with shared assumptions and shared outcomes. We've all heard of the so-called American dream. What is the American dream? Well, that story has been told a thousand times. 
It's the story of the downtrodden, the outcast, the hungry, and the poor who land on American shores to pursue their dreams. And inherent in that story are the notions of hard work, progress, and overcoming opposition, and eventual success. That's our story, the American dream. Come to our shores. Live the dream. Well, the Jews also had a shared meta-narrative, and it centered on the Exodus. The Exodus is a story of a rescuing God who comes to deliver in the darkest hour. It's the story of exile and return. It's the story of bondage and liberation, the story of holocaust and freedom. The Exodus story has been repeated thousands of times from the streams of Babylon to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. And the Jews believe that they participated in a national story that stretched all the way back to Abraham. And it would reach forward to a future golden age as predicted by their national prophets. But here is a really crucial observation. Whereas many nations look backwards to a golden age, whereas many nations look back to the sort of primeval national Eden, whereas many nations told legendary stories about their heroic founders, the Hebrews saw their golden age as a future event. It's not back there, it's in the future. After all, their story began back there in slavery in Egypt. So the golden age is in the future. Now, to understand the story of Israel, you really do have to understand, though, the Exodus. And that event marked the genesis of the nation when Yahweh moved cataclysmically against Israel's enemies and raised their status from slaves to citizens overnight. It was in that story that God revealed his great name, Yahweh, through a burning bush. Yahweh came down from heaven like a burning fire and a smoking pillar, and he routed the Egyptians. He split apart the sea. He fed them man in the wilderness, and he led them triumphantly into the promised land. That's all in their minds, the story of the Exodus, where they were founded as a nation. And every Passover, celebrated annually, the Hebrews gathered in Jerusalem to rehearse the story. The Exodus became the lens through which they interpreted their history. They were chosen by a God who burst suddenly into history, who threw down the powers of the enemy, and who chose them and marched them into a promised land. And why is this so important? Here's why. Because their God will do it again. This is what they anticipated. That was the national expectation. He's going to do it all over again. He would liberate their land and he would establish his kingdom forever. And that's why thousands upon thousands of Passover pilgrims gathered in Jerusalem every year. They kept on rehearsing the story because it's going to happen again. Not identically, but God is going to liberate our land and establish his kingdom forevermore. So in other words, Passover was retrospective. That it's a, it's a memory of how God came to the nation's aid in our darkest hour. 
He did not fail to deliver. But even more importantly, in many ways, Passover was prospective. This is what God is going to do for us in the future. Now, Israel had fallen under the trampling heel of four kingdoms. And we looked at these four kingdoms two weeks ago. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. But don't forget, their prophet Daniel, as we discovered two weeks ago, had told them that four crushing kingdoms would come. These four kingdoms were like four dreadful beasts. But in the days of those kingdoms, the God of heaven would act, and he would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. So if you're a Jew, and you're reading Daniel, what are you supposed to see? What's coming? If you're living in the first century, and you see Herod's splendid temple just arising on the horizon, and you know you're in the days of that fourth kingdom, Rome, what are you anticipating? You are anticipating that God's deliverance is imminent. It's right there on the horizon. And that, by the way, is why you had so many false Christs in the first century. People knew this was the time the Christ was supposed to come. So with all that in place, let's go back to another Old Testament prophet, the prophet Malachi, Malachi chapter 4. Let's turn back to the final chapter of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. And let's notice how Malachi, another national prophet, spoke of a coming glorious day of liberation and judgment on the wicked. Now, you're turning back to the last chapter of our Old Testament, but just keep in mind this is not the last chapter in the Hebrew canon. The Hebrew canon ends with Second Chronicles. But regardless, notice how our Old Testament ends. Verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Total destruction. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from your stall. And you shall tread down the wicked For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says Yahweh of hosts. These are indeed glorious words. But pay very careful attention to the end of verse 3. There is a day coming when Yahweh acts. Well, isn't that how you would describe the Exodus? The day when God finally acted, when God finally came to our deliverance. So how would you know that that day is near? Verse 5. Behold, I will send you a light to the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, do you recall the question that Jesus put to his disciples as he made his way down from the Mount of Transfiguration? The disciples asked, when will Elijah come? 
They asked that question because they knew Malachi's prophecy. So, what was Jesus' answer? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Elijah, the messenger who announces the new exodus has already come. So if Jesus told you Elijah has come, what should you anticipate? The day when God will act. Now friends, go back one chapter and read beginning with verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Well, has the messenger come? Elijah? John the Baptist? And what happens next? Well, keep reading. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So friends, if you are looking for the new exodus to come, you know there's got to be a temple for the Lord to come to suddenly. That's what I would think if I'm reading Malachi. There's got to be a temple for him to come to. And is there a temple in Jerusalem, a temple of likes of which the world has never seen? Yes. Herod undertook a massive building project to raise a temple that was three times taller than Solomon's. Now, friends, is Israel in desperate need of a new exodus? Yes, she has been overrun for centuries. And even now, the legionnaires of the fourth kingdom are peering over her ramparts and occupying her fortresses. The fourth kingdom is still in power. So friends, everything is set for God to act. And the stage is second exodus moment and to deliver his people. This is how the Jews of the first century would have interpreted the Old Testament. This is what they're looking for. Now let's go back in time just a little bit further and make sure we have the whole story. If you recall, Israel in the north, the ten tribes were invaded and destroyed by the Assyrians in the year 722 B.C. There were two tribes in the south that survived that initial assault. Jerusalem also survived, but barely But then came the Babylonians, and the Babylonians overran the city and destroyed the temple. Seventy years later, there was a little miniature exodus moment when the Persians who conquered the Babylonians permitted the Jews to go back and to rebuild their walls and to rebuild their temple. But you know, the glory of the kingdom never returned. The royal line of kings remained dormant for centuries. Persia was the second of Daniel's four kingdoms. And that new temple was just a trifle compared to Solomon's. And curiously, we never read of God's presence returning to the post-exilic temple the way it came to the tabernacle or to Solomon's temple. The glory of God just came and filled the tabernacle. It filled Solomon's temple, but it never came back to that post-exilic temple. And Israel was never truly free. She remained under Persian dominion. So has God ever really come suddenly to his temple and liberated his land? After the Persians came the conquering Greeks, and then the Imperial Romans. And when Jesus Christ was born, 
There was a god sitting on the throne in Rome named Caesar Augustus. And Israel's king Herod was half Idumean and a vassal king to the Romans. And he had no blood relation to David. Herod substantially rebuilt and glorified the temple as a favor to the Jews. But God's presence still had never returned to the temple. And Herod was a notoriously bloodthirsty and vain man. Herod was little better than those ancient pharaohs who actually enslaved the Hebrew children. In fact, Matthew's birth narrative has unmistakable echoes of the Exodus account. You think about Pharaoh who went off and killed those children. Here's Herod and he comes and he slays the innocent children when Jesus is born. He's another Pharaoh on the throne. So friends, this is the fourth kingdom world into which Jesus came preaching for some three years. Israel anxiously awaits a second exodus when God will finally act. They're awaiting that day when God will finally come to his temple. And every Passover, the Jews' hearts is burned with anticipation that they're one year closer and one year closer and one year closer. I mean, he's got to come. But when will he come? Well, Elijah's got to come. But there's one more prophecy that we have to consider. When will he come? The fact is, we looked at that prophecy in depth last week. Zechariah told us how God will launch the second exodus. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. And how is he coming? Sitting on a donkey's colt. And when he comes, look again at Malachi 3 and verse 1. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And what did Jesus do after he rode his donkey to Jerusalem? Jesus rode in on Sunday, Monday morning dawn, and he moved suddenly to the temple. But explain this. Jesus overturns the tables. He sends the sacrificial animals bellowing and squawking in every direction. He chases away the money changers. And he turns on his heel, he ascends the Mount of Olives, and he pronounces the entire, thorough, complete, utter destruction of the temple. Every last stone will be thrown violently to the ground. Can you explain that? And not only that, he said what all happened within one generation. Exactly 40 years later, every stone was gone. Would you make sense of all that? You can't exactly ignore Jesus. But it's rather difficult to know what to do with him. It's no wonder the disciples didn't understand this until after he resurrected. And that's your second storm. The Roman storm... And now the nationalistic expectations of a second exodus on a collision course with Jesus on his donkey. And now would you turn to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. 
there is a third storm that is brewing off the coast. And that storm is the inscrutable, sovereign, irresistible determination of God to make himself king. As N.T. Wright puts it, this was where the hurricane of divine love met with the cold might of empire and the overheated aspiration of Israel. And no careful read of the Old Testament can ignore the fact that Israel's God is a God of sovereign, independent action who carries on his own purposes in human history and doesn't need to consult with anyone. And he will not be thwarted by the vain aspirations of men or empires. He's going to do what he sets about to do. And would you just read, beginning with verse 7 of Psalm 18, let's, let's read about a storm. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also, the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly in the wings of the wind. He made darknesses covering his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord Yahweh also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Well, does that sound like a storm to you? When the winds of omnipotent God begin to blow, darkness clouds the heavens. The foundations of the earth just shake and rumble beneath his feet. His voice just hollows out channels in the oceans. All of creation will shudder and rock like a small boat caught in a horrific hurricane. And when that hurricane of divine sovereignty collides with the imperial might of Rome and the exodus aspirations of Israel on a cross in Jerusalem, the result was horrific. Darkness falls over the whole creation for three dreadfully long hours. An earthquake rumbles with the planets splitting rocks apart and rocking the bodies of ancient saints to life in their tombs. And a terrified Roman legion, a Roman centurion famed for bravery who watched a heaving body on a cross breathe his last breath. He cries out, truly this was the Son of God. Friends, that is the third storm, the wind of God. The wind of God gathers on the horizon as Jesus mounts his donkey and comes into Jerusalem. God has determined that he will make himself king. And that's why Jesus deliberately rode a donkey and forced Israel to a verdict. Zechariah said it, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus' donkey ride was no mere last-minute convenience for a weary traveler coming to Jerusalem. That's how I used to read the story. Jesus got tired, so he rode a donkey. That's not what's going on here. Jesus 
was asserting God's prerogative to rule from Zion. That's exactly what he's doing. Now, friends, Josephus tells us that among the Jews, a significant movement had begun to emerge in the first century that claimed it's simply time for God to be king. They were tired of failed human leaders. They were sick and tired of false Christ. They were tired of invading armies. They were tired of the Maccabeans, the Hasmoneans, the Herodians, all second-rate human rulers. They simply wanted Yahweh to be king. And they began to understand that their national prophets had predicted precisely that, God will be king. Malachi said, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. It's time for God to be king. Isaiah cried, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the, high, in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's time for God to be king. Isaiah also cried, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. It's time for God to be king. And again, Isaiah says to Zion, The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together, they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord. To Zion, it's time for God to be king. Or Psalm 10, 16 through 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Yahweh, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. It's simply time for God to be king. So what do you suppose is on the mind of Jesus when he comes riding into town on his donkey into the eye of the storm? Is it time for God to be king? Well, is Jesus coming from the east? Last week we looked at the direction that Jesus came. The Old Testament prophets tell us that Yahweh will come from the east. That's the way that God comes to Jerusalem. Does he come suddenly to his temple? Yes. The synoptics make that clear if John does not. Well, friends, if God is making himself king, how will his reign be different from all the others? Isn't that the question we ask with every new inauguration? Every new president is going to be the greatest president ever. They all think it, even if Trump's the only one that says it. How, though, will God's rule be different? Well, to answer that question, let's go back to that first storm for just a minute. I've read a couple of these statements previously, but they are worth remarking on once more. The Roman proconsul Paulus Fabius Maximus commemorated the birthday of the god Octavian Augustus with the following words. 
He writes of that God in Rome, Providence has with eager generosity bestowed the most beautiful ornament on our life by bringing forth Augustus. As the Savior for us and for our descendants, the man who ends war and creates peace, he towers over all the benefactors who lived before him. He has robbed all future benefactors of the hope of doing more than he has done. The birthday of the god Octavius meant for the world the beginning of the message of peace, which has him as its author. And the phrase translated message of peace is our New Testament term, gospel. We celebrate the birthday of the god Augustus, who brings us the gospel. The Romans did indeed believe that the Emperor Augustus was the beginning of the Golden Age, the good news that God has come. But here's the voice of Suetonius. Suetonius was a Roman historian who wrote a life of Augustus. Here's how it all ended. On the day that he died, Augustus frequently inquired whether rumors of his illness were causing any popular disturbance. He called for a mirror and had his hair combed and his lower jaw, which had fallen from weakness, propped up. Presently, he summoned a group of friends and asked, Have I played my part in the farce of life credibly enough? And he entered a tomb. So how does the rule of God differ from all the others? How would you know the final Passover has come? How would you know the second exodus has dawned? By the way, why don't we celebrate Passover anymore? Do you believe in the second exodus? How would you know that God has made himself king in place of all the others? Well, the answer is this. The Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. And raise his broken body from the grave. That's what he predicted three years earlier when he cleansed the temple for the first time. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. I'll destroy the other one for good. In three days I will raise up this temple. That's what the disciples failed to understand at first. Every other king comes to reign and then die. The Lord will die and then reign. So with all that in place at long last, let's return to John chapter 12. And let's notice a curious little detail that John adds. John has already told us the story of Lazarus. And again, unlike the synoptics, John tells us the story so that we interpret the donkey ride in the context of that resurrection of Lazarus. Now, since John has told us the story of Lazarus, he can give us a little detail that you also won't find the synoptics. It's in verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. There's a connection here with Lazarus. You see that? The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Uh Uh-oh, we're in trouble. They're embracing him. And that little interchange really foreshadows where the whole story is going. The king has come, and the king has vast authority, and the king can throw down the armies of Egypt and the armies of Rome if he wants to. The king can stage a new exodus at Passover, but maybe, just maybe, the king has greater aspirations yet. Maybe he's already given us a sign that he's about to pull off something far greater than that original exodus. Lazarus was the seventh and final sign that Jesus is the Christ. But maybe that final sign is pointing beyond itself to something even greater than that first exodus. Maybe he's about to lead a new exodus out of the fallen, broken, sin-cursed creation into new life to come. Maybe he's come to resurrect the dead. Maybe Lazarus' resurrection was just the prelude to the second exodus that's coming. And how will he pull that off? Well, recall, there's only been one previous story in all four Gospels, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. And I wish we could go back and just sort of work through that story again, but we won't. But John, in chapter 6, deliberately connected that story, the feeding of the 5,000, to the Passover. And if you were there when Jesus fed the 5,000, you would recall a little formula that's repeated again and again and again. He took. He blessed. He broke. And he gave. If you fast forward to the Passover meal... Guess what? He took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave. He took his own body, he prayed, his body was broken on a cross, and he gave new life to us all. The king has already come. Do we see him? He has already inaugurated the second exodus from this creation to the next. He has already given us a new Passover meal, the communion of the church. We don't celebrate Passover. We celebrate communion. He came on a donkey. And do we recognize him? Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. There was a final Passover, and there was a new Exodus. Now, we spent three weeks trying to understand this simple little donkey ride, and I wouldn't take so much time if I wasn't firmly convinced that this is monumentally important for our understanding of all of human history. So can we look at this simple little peasant journey? A young Jewish man bouncing into town on the back of a donkey as the moment when God made himself king. God has already triumphed over all human gods. And he has already given his son authority in heaven and on earth. All authority. 
God has already launched a second exodus from this fallen creation to the next. And we as believers are already on our way to the promised land, are we not? We're on our way to the new creation. And God has already come suddenly to his temple and resurrected his body from the grave. So in the words of Psalm 2, can we be wise? Be wise, O kings. Be wise, all of us. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son, the resurrected Son. So we pray. Our Father, we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, deliberately rode his donkey into Jerusalem. We confess, yes, the world often seems chaotic, out of control. The wrong seems off so strong. But God is the ruler yet. Jesus is the ruler yet. We thank you that that humble peasant has been glorified. That he has received all authority in heaven and on earth. And that the firstborn from the dead is the ruler of the nations and the kings of our planet today. Lord, just help us to live in this reality and to not fear and tremble, but to live in the reality that Christ has already come and already been enthroned. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.